and love is all that I can give to you. Love is more than just a game for two. Two in love can make it. Take my heart and please don't break it. Love was made for me and Welcome to Love Savers Radio, ministering the blessings of covenant. This is Walter and Sandy Fox from Love Savers Ministry, called by God to minister the blessings of the marriage covenant by enriching, encouraging, strengthening, and praying for the healing of marriages, especially marriages in crisis. Today's guest is Deborah Barr. She co-authored the book, Keeping Love Alive as Memories Fade. She wrote this book with Dr. Edward Shaw, MD, and Dr. Gary Chapman. Across America and around the world, the five love languages have revitalized relationships and saved marriages from the brink of disaster. Can the five love languages also help individuals, couples, and families cope with the devastation of Alzheimer's disease? And Keeping Love Alive as Memories Fade, co-authors Chapman, Shaw, and Barr they give a resounding yes. Their innovative application of the five love languages creates an entirely new way to touch the lives of the five million Americans who have Alzheimer's, as well as their 15 million caregivers. This book is about how love gently lifts a corner of dementia's dark curtain to cultivate an emotional connection amid memory loss. You can go to moodypublishers.com for more resources and information. In the meantime, Sandy talks with Deborah Barr about keeping love alive as memories fade. Let's listen. Hello. Hi, Sandy. We're going to discuss keeping love alive as memories fade. And... It sort of tells us what real love looks like when real life gets hard, right? And it's not the Hollywood kind of love or the young couple gazing into each other's eyes across the cafe, but it's the kind of loving when someone who was unable to show love in return and continuing to love in that way year in, year out as you watch the person you love most in the world suffer the ravages of the disease many of us dread above all others, right? And this is the heart of the message of keeping love alive when memories fade, right? And you've included We Love Dr. Chapman, he's done so many wonderful interviews with us, and we'll discuss the five love languages and how that can help in the Alzheimer's journey. And you are an educator in Alzheimer's disease with your MA, right? And Dr. Edward Shaw is telling us the story, his personal story, right? He shifted his medical practice from oncology to a hybrid of dementia diagnosis, treatment and counseling in the wake of his wife's diagnosis with early onset Alzheimer's disease. And I think she was 53, right? 
Mm-hmm, that's correct. Could you tell us first the love story <laughs> of Rebecca and Ed? I would be happy to tell you that. That in many ways inspired this book. Yes. Um, they met in 1976 when they were both students at the University of Iowa. They dated for about three and a half years, and they had a dream of one day getting married and having three daughters. And in the fullness of time, they did, in fact, get married and have three daughters. And they were initially in Rochester, Minnesota, at the Mayo Clinic, where Ed had training in radiation oncology. They moved to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where I live, Dr. Chapman lives, and the Shaw family lived. Um, They moved here in 1995 so that Ed could take the chairmanship of the radiation oncology department at Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center, which is here in Uh Winston-Salem. So they had a wonderful life, three happy daughters. Everything was rocking along just beautifully until at age 53, Rebecca was diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's disease. And it's a very sweet but very heart-rending story, which is really chapter one in our book. And... When that diagnosis came about, Dr. Shaw realized how few resources are often available to families that are trying to cope with this diagnosis. And so partly to help him and his daughters cope, but also because he sort of felt called to begin to move in a different direction. He actually went back to school as an MD, got a master's degree in mental health counseling, and opened a memory counseling program at the medical center. And that's actually where I met him. I was the coordinator of that program. Yeah. Why do you use the term care partner rather than caregiver throughout the book? There's a story behind that. Um, We had a support group for people who had been diagnosed with dementia but were very early in their disease. And those folks were talking amongst themselves. And a woman that in the book we called Keisha, she said that since she's so early in her disease and she's not that bad, she felt offended every time she heard her husband say he was her caregiver. And we realized that when a person is early in their disease, it's a much more sensitive way to talk about that if you use the term care partner. Because up until about the midpoint of the disease, the spouse or the the adult child or whoever the caregiver is really is more of a partner. And it that term allows them to feel more emotionally equal to that person. So we use it um, out of respect and out of love or, you know, their self-esteem as a person who's walking into a, a diagnosis of dementia. Right. How does dementia threaten the emotional glue of a relationship? Well, it does that in a lot of ways, and that's, that's our made-up term for what happens, uh, right. the emotional glue. But one of the things that happens 
to skew a relationship is the the Alzheimer's disease or the other dementia, whatever it may be, often introduces a lot of really odd behavior into the relationship. And we talk about the seven of those in the book, but it's very challenging to maintain a relationship with someone who's beginning to behave in ways that are, are really tough to deal with. One that's particularly difficult for the spouse is that at a certain point in the disease, the person with the disease may mistake that spouse for someone else. They may think the spouse is their sibling or their daughter or son, depending on the gender. And that's very hurtful to the spouse. Um, another thing that happens as the disease progresses and the memory gets shorter and shorter and shorter, the person with the disease asks the same question over and over and over and over. And they, the reason for that is they literally can't remember that they just asked it or they literally can't remember whatever answer they were given. But that is very exasperating for the family member. And then there are things like delusion, delusional thinking. Um, about 70% of the people with Alzheimer's disease, long about the middle stage of the disease, they begin to think in ways that are delusional. They believe that something is true when it's not true at all, but despite any evidence to the contrary, they still think it is. And that can be due to misinterpreting sensory input. You know, there are shadows maybe falling on objects or there are bright lights or too much noise. And so some of the common delusions are things like they believe that a stranger has been in the house or they believe that the people on television are actually right there in the room. Or they may have paranoid delusions, meaning they think someone's spying on them, somebody's stealing their money, their clothes, or they may even have the delusion that their spouse, with no evidence to support it, that they think the spouse is, is having an affair. And these delusions are very real to the person, but you can see how that would um, create some unbonding, so to speak, right. um, between the, the two marriage partners. So they're really tough things that come about as a result of the disease, which impact the relationship. And, you know, I might just say that that's, that's what's different about our book we do talk about Alzheimer's disease. We do provide some disease education. But our main focus is on how the disease impacts relationships. And yes. that, of course, is where the five love languages come in. Right. What role does the, let me see if I say this right, amygdala play in emotional memory? Did I pronounce uh, that correctly? Uh, yes, you did. Oh, um, good. That's a structure in the temporal lobes of the brain that has a lot to do with emotion and memory. And feeling and, love, the um, ability to feel love, right? Yes, it helps people feel loved, absolutely. And it attaches emotion to memory. You know, the, the memories that stick with you the, the longest are the ones that have some emotional, you know, connection. Something happened that was emotionally positive or negative you're much more likely to remember that longer. Right. You remember the emotion. And that amygdala is kind of in the center of the brain, right? 
more deeply in the center? It is deep in the brain. Um, I would have to actually, to answer that properly, I'd have to go look. But it is. it works very closely with a structure called the hippocampus. Uh-huh. And the hippocampus is really critical for memory. And that's generally the, the hallmark symptom of Alzheimer's disease is memory loss. And it really has to do with what's going on in the hippocampus. Uh, it's essential for memory. And that's where it's believed that Alzheimer's disease begins, and then it spreads from that point. I see. You introduce many amazing couples. How does Sally safeguard the dignity of Ben, her impaired husband, would you tell our listeners? What was wonderful about this couple is the way that Sally would deliberately say and do things that would preserve the dignity of her spouse. And so many times um, when there's a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, the couple just grows apart. Everything gets kind of cold. And the person with the disease is less and less and less a participant, of course. But the the spouse and what Sally did, the spouse can do things to build up their self-esteem, give them meaningful activities. She would build up his self-esteem by, you know, letting him walk the dog and then saying things like, you know, honey, I don't think the dog would even go for a walk with anybody but you. You do such a great job with our dog. And she would dress up the lawnmower and let him mow, even though he couldn't actually mow properly. He would mow erratically or round and round and round a tree till they get, you know, the mower ran out of gas. But still, she would praise him and she would brag on him to other people. And why we love that is it's our strong belief that while Alzheimer's curtails a person's ability to express love, they don't lose the ability to receive it. And what she did was a very loving thing to build him up and just be kind to him. And as a result, this couple stood out as as much closer emotionally than many, most of the other couples that we're aware of that are dealing with this disease. Hmm. Why is preserving a positive, loving relationship beneficial to both care partners and people with dementia? Well, you know, God made us for relationship, and God made us to love each other. And when you've got a diagnosis of dementia, but you're still focusing on the relationship and the love, that literally, for both people, reduces stress, reduces brain inflammation, and body inflammation. And what research has shown is that in the absence of a positive connection, the disease can actually progress more rapidly, Uh and people don't live as long. So the feeling of being loved is is really important in, in the relationship and also, you know, your physical and emotional health. Yeah, it's so important. Just like they say, holding little babies, right? That it's yes, so important exactly. to them, and if yes. they aren't held and nurtured that way, 
that they don't live as long sometimes in the beginning. What are the five love languages described first by Dr. Gary Chapman, and how can we identify which of the five love languages is most important to us and to a loved one with AD? I guess in the beginning, um, it's different because you're you're really trying to figure out which one is the most important to them, but then toward the end, all five should be used, right? Right. That's exactly right. That's that's what we say in the book. Uh-huh. Um, you want me to just kind of quickly list them? No, you don't have listeners? to because our, our listeners are familiar with the five love languages. But could you tell us how you can identify um, in the beginning of Alzheimer's which might be the most important? Sure, yeah. In the beginning of the disease, in the very beginning of the disease, when the person isn't very far along, a lot of times they can take the exact same quiz that a cognitively healthy person can take. Okay. And there's the quiz is in the book, and it's online at fivelovelanguages.com. And you just simply answer the questions, and at the end it will tell your scores. And if, if your score sounds right to you... Um, you probably have identified your love language. But as a person progresses in their disease, the care partner can administer that quiz to them kind of like an interview because they may not be able to, you know, um, take it, process it, record their answer quite as, as adeptly as they could have before. So the care partner can just administer that like an interview, record their answers, and probably you'll have the love language. Long about the middle of the disease, it's a little uh, different. We recommend kind of a two-step process because if the person can't take it as an interview and can't take it themselves, what we suggest is that the care partner or the caregiver by that point, we would use the term caregiver because they truly are more giving of care than partnering. Right. But that the, the caregiver would sit down and take that quiz on behalf of the person. Hopefully that person has known them for many, many, many years, and they can take that quiz as they know that person would have answered. And then adding to that three questions. And the answers to the questions coupled with the answers to the quiz can pretty much narrow down what their love language is. And the questions are, before dementia, how did your loved one most often express love to you and others? And you have to reflect back and think, hmm, you know, what, what daddy would mostly do is, you know, he would... Uh, offer to change the oil in my car or he would offer to vacuum or whatever, he might be showing you that his his love language was active service. Right. People tend to behave, they tend to speak to others what their own love language is. Yeah. So that's one. Second question is, before dementia, what did your loved one complain about the most? And the reason for that question is our complaints tend to uh, reveal our inner desires. 
Uh-huh. And then the third question is, before dementia, what request did your loved one make most often? Did they say, would you rub my feet? Would you rub my back? And they were probably telling you their love language was physical touch. Right. So you take the quiz on their behalf, you answer the three questions, and quite likely you will have narrowed down their love language. Very good. How does damage to the frontal, temporal, and let me see if I'm pronouncing this correctly, parietal lobes, did I say that mm -hmm. right? Okay, of the brain diminish the ability to express love languages. Okay, the parietal lobe. The frontal, parietal. the frontal lobes of your brain are where is housed what we would call executive function, meaning this is kind of like your control center. Uh -huh. This is the executive uh, department yeah. <laughs> in the brain. And a person who is having uh, dementia affect the frontal lobes of the brain they kind of lose their filter. They lose their ability to control uh, what they say. Or they may do socially inappropriate things. Um, it can be quite challenging for the spouse and sometimes embarrassing. They may be very blunt uh -huh. and they say things to someone who comes to visit. Uh, wow, you're really fat. <laughs> <laughs> or they may say, you know, I've never liked you. They they cross yeah. over into you know things that we mostly inhibit, even if we think it. We right. want to not be unkind and impolite. So when a person um, begins to do that, they are what we call disinhibited. They're disinhibited, and right. they may do things like change their clothes right by the poolside rather than going into the locker room. Yes, <laughs> um, right. It just. Some of the behaviors can be very embarrassing and challenging. This is not as common in Alzheimer's disease as uh -huh. it is in um, a dementia called frontotemporal dementia. And behavior changes are much more a part of that one. I see. Why is emotional estrangement among family members a common side effect of AD? In the book... We use a metaphor for that of an unraveling tapestry, and that's because you have here an incurable neurodegenerative disease, and that tapestry will eventually fully unravel, but in the beginning, it actually kind of unravels from both sides, um, the relation if that's a metaphor for the relationship. The healthy person is dealing with a lot of things that cause them to step back from the person with the disease. They're dealing with fear. They're dealing with grief. This is probably not how they expected to spend their retirement years, and they'd be very much grieving over, you know, what, what the future's going to look like. They may also, in our culture, there's a lot of stigma to anything that affects the mind. Yes. and. Alzheimer's disease is not a mental illness, but it can look like one. So the healthy person steps back for those reasons. The person with the disease steps back because as their brain and their frontal lobes, like we just talked about, are more and more affected, they have personality changes. They're losing the ability to take initiative 
and they're losing the ability to emotionally connect. So one of our messages in the book is that if this relationship is going to go the distance, if you're going to cross the finish line with this person, it really falls on the care partner to take that on because the other person is losing their ability to do that. So that's, in a nutshell, you know, emotional estrangement. And my co-author, Dr. Shaw, has said that 100% of all the couples he's ever counseled for a dementia diagnosis are emotionally disconnected at some point, you know, in to some degree. And this is why, you know, both people are dealing with something related to the dementia, and it just tears people apart. Oh, yeah. Explain what you mean when you distinguish love as a feeling from love as an action. Would you Well, please? you don't have to have warm, fuzzy feelings to behave in a loving way. Right. You know, it's a choice. And Dr. Chapman has emphasized that very much with the, the five love languages. Yeah. And it, it applies here just the same um, you know, if you claim to have feelings you don't have, that's false. Right. But if you're just choosing to express love to another person for that person's benefit or that person's pleasure, you've just made a choice. And often with Alzheimer's disease, that's what it comes down to because you may or may not get feedback. You may or may not get reciprocity. Right. So we advocate Love is a choice, and don't wait for the warm, fuzzy feelings. Right, right. If someone with Alzheimer's doesn't remember us, why should we visit, some people would ask. Mm. What a great question, right? Yeah. Because that's a question that people ask. If she's not going to remember that I was even there, why should I go? Right. A couple of reasons. One is... If you're the spouse or you're the adult son or daughter or the sister or whoever you are, you want to look back and know that you did the best you could do for that person while you still had them. So it's partly for you, but it's also an opportunity to give that person a moment of, of joy, a moment of pleasure, and because... That's how life is experienced. Moment to moment. You know, at a certain point, it's moment to moment. Right. And in fact, um, we actually, in our book, took the love language quality time and renamed it quality moments. Uh-huh. Because that person is experiencing life in moments. They can't go off with you for the afternoon and have a quality time, or they can't spend the evening with you and think of that as quality time. It's more of a moment. And so when you visit that person, it's a moment. You know, it's a moment of of blessing to them. And and why we think that matters is that what research has shown is that a person will retain the feeling of being loved even after they can't remember what stimulated the feeling. In other words, if you massage their hand and their love language is touch, or you say a lovely compliment and their love language is words, 
and they feel loved and happy, long after you go home and they forget what you did, they're still going to feel that way. That's so you can, important. You can leave them. Right. Yeah, know. that's no, one of the most important things. Yeah, that you've left us with uh, from your wonderful book, and I just have to leave you now. Thank you so very much, uh, Deborah. We appreciate the time you spent with us on such an important subject, and all the research that you've done and shared. And for now, I'll just say goodbye and God bless. Thank you so much. Thanks all for having right. me. Bye now. for marriages in crisis. If you want prayer for your marriage, send your prayer request to lovesavers1 at aol.com. That's lovesavers1 at aol.com. And remember, love never fails. With all we have at stake, we'll bend until we break, cause we both believe.